The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before him all these words the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down from Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear God, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick of the darkness where God was. This is the word of God.
morning, everyone. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your words. And I'm aware this morning that for some people, these words seem a million miles away, just not really relevant to their lives. They seem dark and and maybe a little scary. And we're not quite sure what to do with them, what to do with the picture of you that they give us. And so we beg for your help this morning, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would open our eyes to see the beauty of God in these words, to see our own necessity for him, to see ourselves rightly. And so we ask that you would create in us hearts that cry out with great joy, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Lord, solidify your covenant in our hearts this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a universal principle that sources of great power can't be approached in just any way. If you want to study volcanoes or tornadoes, you have to know just when and just how to make your approach. Or if you're up close and personal with a hydroelectric dam or a nuclear power plant, you can't be casual or experimental in how you interact with that equipment, or else you could quite simply get blown away. And the same is true about approaching people of great power. You see the President of the United States... Are you going to run right up to him? No. I mean, even if you had the best of intentions, if you approach him too quickly or in the wrong way, you're probably going to get shot. Or at the very least, you're going to get your face shoved into the pavement by the Secret Service. Well, how much more are those principles true of God Almighty? The Israelites, they had been thrilled to see his power in Egypt, his unparalleled power over nature, over the slave masters, and the false worship of Egypt— But then came the Passover, in which they came to see, wait a minute, uh, just because he wants us as his people, that doesn't mean that we're automatically safe either. God, in his undiluted purity, which we desperately need, has to be approached in a certain way. Because the presence of sin found in each of us, it means that we're not entitled to safety in God's presence any more than we're entitled to safety when we go to pet a tiger or try to catch a lightning bolt. And so the Passover was when the people's eyes were first opened to the holiness of their God. But then a decisive way was opened for them. Under the blood, through the waters, And then Israel entered this new existence with God. He'd redeemed them, but the lingering question was, what came next? How were they to interact with such a God? How did they relate to him? Exactly how does one approach the unapproachable God? And what about us today? I mean, we who through faith have passed under the blood of the Lamb, through the waters of baptism, are we just good now? Is Jesus my homeboy? Is God my co-pilot? Is he the one whose job it is to see me through safely and to help me be the best me I can be? Many people in our culture speak like God is just this buddy from down the street or, or maybe he's a dear granddaddy in the sky. 
And then still others see God as so scary, so distant, that they barely venture to speak of him at all. They come to church and they long to live in his way, but there's no reassurance. There's always a nagging fear of his displeasure. To them, God is all transcendence, and any sense of comforting intimacy is just impossible for them to imagine. So for Christians at both extremes of that pendulum, Sinai offers us a corrective. How does one genuinely approach the truly unapproachable God? What we're going to see is that there is one very specific way it can happen, and God himself has taken all the initiative. In our passage, there are three different times that Moses goes up to speak with God. So we'll use those as our outline. We'll see first that God himself draws and calls his people. Then we'll see that God himself reveals to us the danger of our own sin. And then thirdly, God himself provides the mediator we need. I don't know if we could get that outline up on the screen. Uh, We'll flash back to that every time we, we transition to a new section. So we can just leave that up for a little while. Chapter 19 starts by speaking of the people's arrival at the wilderness of Sinai. And this was a big plateau in the middle of nowhere, right at the f- foot of this mountain, the same mountain where in chapter 3, God had spoken to Moses from the burning bush. And if you remember from that revelation of himself, the Lord had told Moses, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. So their arrival at this mountain had been the plan all along. It was at this mountain that God was going to reveal himself to his people and enter into a formal relationship with them. So they make camp, and then Moses heads up the mountain to speak with God. And then what follows in verses 4 to 6 is of the utmost importance for us to hear. It's really the heartbeat of the book of Exodus. Maybe in some ways it's the heartbeat of the whole Old Testament. Listen to what the Lord says to Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So first, he reviews the fact of their recent deliverance from slavery because of God's judgment on their enemies, who were also his enemies. And then God reminds the Israelites that he bore them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. Parent eagles, I don't know if you know this from biology, parent eagles, sometimes they they scoop up underneath their eaglets who are having trouble flying, and they bring them safely to the nest. So there's this imagery of being protected by a power that is both beautiful and fierce, and you're gliding over the troubled lands. And we've seen that for Israel in these past chapters, haven't we? We've seen with the pillar of cloud and fire, with the Red Sea, the guidance, the food, the drink, the protection from Amalek. And when we as Christians think back to our own coming to faith, coming to meet the living God, we too can think of his eagle's wings, how we didn't, even, we didn't even understand the danger we were in, and yet he bore us up safely out of the mess, out of the illusion, and he brought us to a place of security and clear vision. And we beheld him at the mountain. But what are his intentions for his saved people? 
we see three things here. First, if we will truly covenant with him, now if that word covenant is strange, think of it as like a marriage agreement with promises exchanged that are certainly going to be tested. If we will obey his voice and keep covenant with him, first, we will be his treasured possession among all peoples. Now all the love songs in the world will tell you how amazing it feels to be someone's treasured possession. But have you ever been a king's treasured possession? Someone who can take anything he wants from a vast realm and what he wants is you. Christian, that is your reality. He didn't set his eyes on us because we were so lovely. Actually, we were his enemies when he chose to bring us near. But now here we are, redeemed and prized by the one who matters most. How many self-help books or self-esteem talks would we find totally irrelevant if we could just actually believe what our God has said about our identity? We are his treasured possession. Secondly, he said, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. In the context of the whole world, the people of God are a kingdom of priests. Priests bring cleansing. Priests intercede. Priests are mediators between God and humanity. And that is the purpose of every single Christian. You have a purpose every day, regardless of your career or your unique interests or struggles. The role you play behind everything else you do is something of immense importance and eternal consequence. Ultimately, there's not a divide between secular and sacred, between clergy and lay people. We're all God's laborers in his harvest field. We're all builders of his temple. So we're reflecting his image across this broken world. We're letting Christ be seen in us. And we're ministering to each other in his name. We're a kingdom of priests. And thirdly, we are a holy nation. A holy nation. In the same way in which God himself is distinctly other than, he's also set us apart. He is set apart from this world's values, from the, it, the world's um, mode of operation, and we're called to be like that too. We are called to be set apart, to resemble him in his uniqueness, to resemble his transforming goodness, his moral beauty. The people of God are a changed people. And that's true from day one of walking with Christ, but it's also more and more true each day progressively. It's exciting. It gives us joy when we get glimpses of that change in us, right? Like the ways I would have responded before, now I'm able to react totally differently. The ways I invest my time, the things I care about, what I desire for myself or what I desire for the good of others, it's shifting and it's exciting when you see that change. Now, holiness doesn't happen all at once. There are seasons when the lack of growth can be incredibly frustrating and you can wonder, am I changing at all? That sort of stagnation happens, but it's a season. And if that's you today, press in and ask God for grace to shake that off and move forward. But you know, if you feel like that season of no change has become permanent in your life, well then it's time to revisit whether or not you are actually a Christian. And it, it's time to ask for help with that also. Let's go back to the basics Let's look at whether we actually have been born on eagle's wings to God's presence. Because without that, um, we're not going to become a holy nation. Now, it's been said that 
A profession of faith that makes no difference in a person certainly makes no difference to God either. We are called to be a holy nation. And let's pause here and just ask, do we resent that? Do we resent the fact that God asks us to do stuff and that he wants to change us to resemble his character? Because this chapter is an intro to the Ten Commandments and really it's an intro to the whole law of Moses. So it's important for us to ask at this point, do we even need to know the contents of these chapters? After all, isn't what God wants from us relationship, not rules? Maybe you've heard that. Well, as we see in verse 5, the two aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, they're mutually necessary. If we're truly participating in covenant with God, there has to be a commitment to obey him. And I think we understand that from our own context also, don't we? I mean, a culture of expected behavior is inherent to any family. And you might say to your kids, in this family, we don't bring that into this house, okay? That's one of our rules, or we don't actively try to harm one another. We treat one another with honor and respect. Every family has rules. Should we expect it to be any different in God's house? Especially when he's not only a father, but also creator and king. Our God is making all things new, starting with a new humanity. And in his realm, we come to walk in paths of life, not death. It's as simple as that. And so these laws, this holiness, can be summed up as love for God and love for other people. And his laws really just show us what that love looks like. So Jesus said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But how? How do we grow in these specific avenues of love? How do we pursue this culture of holiness? The way in which we do it makes all the difference. And the way it must be done is by those who have already been redeemed, who have already been carried into God's presence. What I mean is that God's saving grace comes first, as we see in verse 4. And then come his requirements, as we see in the first part of verse 5. Maybe we can go to those verses. First is his saving grace in verse 4. Then his requirements in the first part of verse 5. And then, in the end of 5, in verse 6, we see that God's requirements are fueled by his promises. So, all to say, the grace of God comes before the law of God. And if you try to get to God by using his commands as a ladder of righteousness to climb up to his approval, you will fail. You'll either end up damned through ugly self-righteousness, or you'll give up trying to seek God at all out of despair. You can't change the order of approaching God. First comes his gift of salvation through what Christ alone did for you. Have you received that gift? If not, let's talk about that. Then comes the gift of his law, his words of life that compel us to grow into people of love toward him and others. And those commands are always accompanied by and fueled by his promises He's prepared this glorious identity for us to walk in by his spirit. So this isn't burdensome. Covenant with God is life at its fullest. But you have to get the order right. If you try to live out his law without remembering the good news of the new identity that he's bought for you at the cross, then you're going to do it out of a joyless, sheer, willpower-driven behavior modification that glorifies you, not him, 
and that's mixed with bitterness, not love. And that is not the covenant being unpacked here at Mount Sinai. So in this first section, verse 1 through the first part of verse 9, we've seen that the, the first step toward approaching God is that God himself invites that's celebrated across the Bible, that we aren't God's people because we suddenly woke up one day and we said, you know, it would sure be wise and good of me to seek out the living God and to learn how to live in relationship with him. Said no one ever. In both Isaiah and in Romans, it's written that none is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. So what happened then? Why do we have a room full of people here today? We love because he first loved us. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And maybe you haven't come to him. If you're hearing these words today about belonging to God and participating in a new humanity with purpose that's treasured, that's being purified, if that sounds just like too good to be true today, then consider that maybe he's drawing you. He's inviting you into this people that he's forming. Will you be among those who hear and answer? We can approach the unapproachable God because he has taken the initiative to draw and to call his people. Verses 9b through 20 next show us a second way in which God himself takes the initiative in our approach of him. He takes it upon himself to show us the danger of our own impurity. So our corruption necessitates distance from a holy God, and we needed to know that. Because by nature, we aren't even aware of our own sin. I mean, sure, we, we, might, um, you know, we might say, well, I'm not really the person that I want myself to be. Or we may think like, yeah, the way I've carried myself has kind of pushed others away. But rarely do we think of how we've offended God and the danger that we're in as a result. That's not a popular thought. That's, that's not a, a pleasant thought. It's easily forgettable, which is the reason for these instructions in verses 10 through 15. In 10 through 15, we see that God directs there to be three days of preparation for his descent to Mount Sinai. First, they need to wash their garments. Now, we know that there's nothing more holy about clean clothes, right? Scripture actually doesn't share the same assessment as Victorian culture that cleanliness is next to godliness. Like many of the prophets were fairly wild and unkempt looking. Sometimes it was even in their job description. And... Think about Jesus. He was constantly traveling on these dusty roads full of animal poop. Uh, I mean, if you have this image of Jesus with flowy white robes and perfectly styled hair, you've got to get that out of your head because a lot of the time he slept outside. Jesus got bad breath. And he taught specifically that the outward appearance of these fancy religious leaders does not create actual holiness. So what's the deal here with clean clothes? Well, in many parts of the Mosaic Law, we see requirements for ancient Israel that were ceremonial in nature. In other words, they weren't moral commands, like somehow, hey, become a better person by having clean clothes. No, rather they were symbolic commands, like at certain festivals or unique times in the life of worship. Show that you care about purity. Show that you are among the people who have been set aside for purity. And do that by displaying a picture of it through your clothing. And no, we don't draw a straight line from that to getting dressed up for church, okay? God's presence is not physically located in this room 
any more than it's located in your living room or in your car. So there's, there's disconnect from Sinai in that respect. But this is ceremonial law here. And there are other things, other pieces of ceremonial law you'll find in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, things like not wearing cloth that's made from two types of fabric, not making mixed breeds of animal, um, not eating certain foods that were considered unclean. That's all ceremonial law. And these ceremonial parts of the law were fulfilled in Christ. We don't see them carried over for the New Testament church because they'd fulfilled their purpose of pointing forward to the Messiah and, and pointing to the nature of the new people that he would create by his spirit. Now, another example of a ceremonial requirement we, we see down in verse 15. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Part of the consecration of the people before they encountered the Lord at Mount Sinai was to abstain from sexual relations. And we need to be careful here to understand that intimacy in marriage is never something considered dirty or somehow to God is just a necessary inconvenience. No. Um, in many places throughout the Bible, conjugal bliss is greatly commended and celebrated. And I could make things really awkward by reading some of those passages right now. Uh, I won't, but as positive as this view of human sexuality is in the Bible, there's a purpose here in Exodus of showing us that that even our process of reproduction and even the the closest relationship one can have in this world is broken. It's corrupted by sin. So this is instructive to make the people aware of their brokenness and also, frankly, so that they'll be undistracted before they receive the most important message of their lives. And notice also that there are clear boundaries placed around the mountain. It says um, in uh, verse 12, Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. Does your understanding of the holiness of God go this far? I mean, in America, we tend to, to celebrate the individual, even the wayward individual. And so, so we might be tempted to think like, wow, God is being super harsh here. And that would be to completely understa- misunderstand his nature. We have to get our minds around this, that God is holy. And there is a very real compatibility problem between him and sinners that can't simply be overlooked, not without God changing his nature to be corrupted like us. Instead, what he longs to do and what we desperately need to happen is for our nature to be changed to be like him. And so Sinai is a time for illustration of that reality. It needs to be illustrated for the Israelites to see, for us to see here today. Because if someone has such blatant disregard for the divine, if they, if they hear Moses' words of warning and they just wander out on, onto that hillside, Well, then the question becomes, will the community purge that attitude from their midst? Or will they let it infect them and and forsake their calling as a holy nation? So whenever we see these old covenant, uh, the old covenant people of God, when we see um, calls for them to purge the evil from their midst, our minds need to go to the New Testament concept of excommunication. That if someone repeatedly refuses patient correction and instruction from the church and boldly just wants to do whatever they want to do without a care to what the word of God says about it, then we are to understand that they're not really among the community described in verse 8 that says, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. 
they're not people like that. And so we're to remove their membership and treat them as an unbeliever. So in verses 10 through 15, God kindly alerts the people to the danger of their impurity by setting up these boundaries, these prohibitions, instructions for preparation. And then in verses 16 to 20, we see God further taking initiative um, regarding this danger through the very way that he chose to manifest his glory. Now, if God is coming down to, to meet his people, he could have chosen a lot of ways to manifest himself, right? His presence. He could have, it could have been like when he came to Elijah in great gentleness. Or it could have been like with Noah, where there's this beauty of a rainbow. Or uh, it could have been like the burning bush again, right? But for this time and place, God chose thunder and lightning, and earthquake, and this supernatural trumpet blast that grew louder and louder until maybe they started to wonder, is that noise out there, or is it in my head? Could there be any clearer signs of the danger of approaching the unapproachable? Now, do you think that getting really scared could actually be a gift? Have you ever scared your kids? You better believe I have. I mean, not your kids. I hope I haven't scared your kids. Um, I've scared my kids, is what I meant. You know, when they've gotten too close to a fire or, or an electrical socket or the back of an idling car, I've screamed at them and I've jerked them out of the way in a way that made them turn white and, and widen their eyes and just stop in their tracks. Have you ever had God get your attention in an unpleasant way? Maybe he was warning you about how you're taking his favor for granted or blurring lines that he had clearly set. Has God ever backed you into a corner? And then did you ignore him and grow hardened? Or did you receive that warning and soften and obey? Because love instructs the ignorant about danger. Love instructs the ignorant about danger. In the movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, you know, it's, it's been a good month or so since I've used any Lord of the Rings analogy, so <clears throat> it's time. There's this scene that always gets to me. The funny old hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, happened upon this magic ring, which we come to discover is the one ancient dark ring that could really end the world, much less end poor Bilbo. And so his kind and wise wizard friend, Gandalf, insists that the ring must at once be taken and destroyed. But the ring has become dear to Bilbo, and so he refuses to give it up. And Gandalf then stands up to his full height, dramatically with fire in his eyes, and his shadow swirls and starts to fill the room, and his voice booms, Bilbo Baggins, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. And Bilbo is terrified, and he backs away, and then Gandalf softens and says again in a normal voice and appearance, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. Too often we hold on to our precious sin as if it was something that could bring us a little magic. Or at least it's something shiny that we like to play with. We don't understand the danger. So the God who has drawn us into covenant with himself sometimes thunders and grows menacing. And this is his kindness, which would have us stunned and scared for a moment rather than destroyed by the outcome of our own folly. 
Now, when the time comes for the presence of the Lord to descend on Sinai, he came visually in fire and in smoke. And just, you know, that column that had been leading them through the wilderness, now it's settled, something like it, in even greater way on the mountain. And verse 18 says that the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. Can you imagine that? The purity of God's flame, terrifying, unapproachable, and yet kindly encased in a thick cloud so that the people could behold it without being blinded. All of these are terrifying but gracious reminders to the people. You know, you don't really belong here. And yet, you've been invited here. That's the tension on the mountain of God. And that tension is going to have to be resolved. And resolve it, the text does. In verses 21 and following, we see that God's initiative comes yet again. His initiative, we see it through the provision of Moses as God's chosen mediator. That really takes center stage in this last section. Moses is uniquely the one who can keep the people safe. It's the third time he's going to go down the mountain and carry the words of the Lord to the people. And in the whole section of, of Exodus where they're at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up and down seven times. And the people just grow in awe of his standing as one who can be between them and the infinite one. Now today I've also tagged on three verses from later in chapter 20, and uh, they show the Israelites desperately looking to Moses as their mediator. So in these last verses, we see the, the people's reaction after they've heard the Ten Commandments from the very utterance of God. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off. And they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And notice that earlier in chapter 19, the people had to be warned to keep their distance. They didn't see the danger. They didn't realize their own vulnerability in the presence of such a God. But now, they no longer presume upon their own ability to draw near. In fact, they themselves declare we can't do it. We simply cannot, we simply dare not draw near to God. And that's exactly where they should have been as a starting place. Now they're ready to receive God's initiative that he's been preparing for them all along, a mediator. Someone to go in between. And so getting the people to embrace the mediator that God has provided, that's really what this whole passage is all about. Let's look back at, uh, at verse 9 for a second. The Lord says, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. God wants the people to believe Moses. That's what he's up to here. The people had need for a mediator all along, and really Moses has been functioning in that role since chapter 3, but only now do they acknowledge their need for it. Now, what all did Moses do as mediator? Well, in Egypt, he was the conduit for God's delivering power. And Moses brought the word of God to the people, and Moses interceded for the people when their grumbling grievously offended God. And later in the book, we'll see that Moses provides for sacrificial atonement by setting up the priesthood, and, and Moses establishes the tabernacle of God's presence. So he's doing all these things. Moses is the mediator that the Israelites needed. Hebrews 3 says that Moses was faithful in all God's house. Do you realize your need this morning for a mediator? You know, God hasn't changed at all. 
since this encounter at Mount Sinai. God hasn't changed. He has revealed himself more fully. And a fuller covenant requires a better mediator. And we have one. This wasn't the last time that Moses would stand in the presence of God on a mountain. 1,400 years later, he was seen standing on the Mount of Transfiguration, asking Jesus about the exodus he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus would deliver his people out of slavery. He would carry them on eagles' wings and bring them to God. Forty days later, he would go up the Mount of Olives and ascend to the Father. And ten days after that, on Pentecost, he sent down not a new law, but his very spirit equipping us to keep covenant with God from the heart. It's only with the right mediator that we can approach the unapproachable God. Now, we're Americans, and so we love those shows and those movies where someone smart and resourceful just kind of refuses the help of experts. Instead, they decide to go it alone and, um, and represent themselves. Maybe it's like an armed struggle, or maybe it's a court of law. And against all odds, they do the necessary research and preparation, and they pull out the win all on their own. But in the struggle against sin and death, you are not that hero. Jesus is the hero of this story. He is the brilliant defense attorney you must rely on. He is the mighty warrior you must call on for help. And if not, then you're going to die in slavery in Egypt, or you'll be torched by holy fire on the slopes of Mount Sinai. Self-sufficiency is spiritual death. We never want to presume upon God we never want to grow numb to his warnings or treat his promises as cheap. But neither do we want to cower back in fear as the people did that day at Sinai. And we have no need to because our mediator is even better than Moses. He's not a mere prophet. He is God incarnate. He veiled himself not in a thick cloud of smoke, but he took on flesh and dwelled among us. He doesn't merely bring us to the edge of the mountain. He leads us all the way in to the throne room of God. So if you're uncertain at all today of your standing before God, look to Jesus, your mediator. Meditate on him in the Gospels. Hear his very words. See his very works. Remember his character. Remember his heart toward you. Trust in his work on your behalf. Listen attentively and hold on to his every word. And if you're approaching God the Father through the right mediator, God the Son, and you're carried along by the gift of God the Spirit, then you can be confident that you will enjoy his promises of life. You will be his treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests. You'll be part of this holy nation. And in chapter 20, verse 20, Moses tells the, the terrified people, do not fear he says, God is testing your heart and calling you to obedience, but you don't need to be afraid. And I, I want you to know that the same is true for you today. Your mediator, Jesus, says the same to you. Fear not. Remember his finished work on your behalf. Realize again God's call on your life and his promises. Take his holiness seriously and see it as beautiful and then draw near with appropriate boldness because God has come down to you.
and all that he asks of you. And he does ask a lot of you. But all that he asks of you, he himself will provide. The God whom you have no right to approach made a right way to approach. 1 Timothy 2 says that God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But how will that happen? The very next verse tells us, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So trust him. Don't back away in fear or hopelessness. Draw near to God again today through the person of Jesus Christ. Let's ask for his help. Our gracious God, I know there are some here today who aren't afraid enough. I pray that they would see the danger. I pray that they would know your holiness, that you would sober them, and then you would relieve their fears through Jesus Christ. And there are others here, Lord, who are already terrified. They are not able to see your goodness, your kindness, your grace toward them clearly. I pray that you would lead them also back to the person of Jesus Christ. Let them see his character. Let them believe his words and bring about life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.